Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the F-Rated podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and broadcaster. And I'm Holly Tarquini, founder of the F-Rating, a fair trade-like stamp of approval for films directed and or written by women. Do you remember lockdown, Anu? Yeah, it's weird how I do and I don't. I mean, yeah, it was a very strange time, wasn't it? It was really weird. Yeah, it was either kind of horrendously awful for people or a kind of magical, wonderful, hot spring. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, well, we recorded this episode in lockdown, uh, so you'll probably hear quite a few references to what are now past releases and were Oscar nominations. Um, And it's really good, actually. It's nice to listen to some of the optimism that we had while lockdown was going on, when we all thought that things were going to change and we were going to do things better. (laughs) Yeah, and yet, sadly, we've come out of it and here we are in a place where the inequality has somehow actually got worse, which is a bit sad. But never mind. Yes, never mind. Today we're speaking to a woman who's won eight awards for her work, which is incredibly impressive. And we are talking about a really amazing subject today, Holly. Film editing. And I read this great thing. This Oscar-winning veteran editor said, it's a job that's a cross between being a brain surgeon and a short order cook. So, you know, in other words, intricate and really you know fine work as well as being quite mechanical at the same time we'll find out from our guests if she thinks that resonates so one of the things that i'm interested in is how at the beginning of cinema or filmmaking there were lots of women proportionately far more women in the industry than there are now and that included editing and one of the reasons that they had lots of women editing um, to start off with was because they saw it as a really mechanical job like knitting and they thought it was quite dull. Oh, wow. So they had lots of women to go, look, here are bins <laughs> and bins of, of film. You chop it up and make it into something usable. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's a little bit like the computer industry in the beginning, similar sorts of things. There were more women and then it became more prestigious. And anyway, that's fascinating. Well, let's welcome our guest for this episode, Una Niganila. Una is a multi-award winning editor. She's worked on TV series like The Crown and Three Girls, as well as films like Misbehaviour, Rosie and Stan and Ollie. Thanks so much for joining us, Una. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and uh, I love the fact that our names are so similar, but that's just a tiny, tiny aside. Una, the first question we want to ask you is because we are trying to break down what all these different jobs are actually like. Can you describe for us what a film editor does? Yes. So whenever the director begins shooting, first day of principal photography is my first day as well. And my role is to watch everything that's coming in and begin to cut it together quite rapidly. So I liked what you said about brain surgery and short, what what was the other one? Short order cook. So flipping burgers and like splicing brain tissue. (laughs) And yes, we have to do the brain tissue, but at speed. So one of the tasks that that the editor has is to cut the scenes together because invariably when they're on set, the directors must shoot, you know, say they've got a 12 hour shoot day, things go against them. They have to drop scenes or drop shots. So my challenge is the next day I, I start cutting and I can very quickly tell the director whether they have to shoot something again or, or, or pick up something or if they've missed something or I could hopefully give them reassurance to say their instincts were spot on and the shot that they didn't get, we don't need. And actually the scene works perfectly well without it and we can continue. And actually the film that I'm just on at the moment 
I was receiving the rushes while they were shooting. So it meant that on the very day, so they, they started shooting at 8 a.m., by 3 p.m., I was receiving all the media. So I was able to edit and give the assembly of that day's material to the director that night so he could make a decision on you know, how we were doing and, and what needed to be picked up if needed. See, that's really interesting, Holly, right? Because I always thought it was a really technical job and you obviously know more about this. When I started working as a director, you know, it was my editor that taught me how to direct. So I knew nothing. And I would kind of rock up at the edit with my rushes. I was doing very simple. They were supposed to be video diaries, so they're supposed to look quite, quite rough. But she was the person that taught me about cutaways. She taught me about needing to have an establishing shot. She taught me everything. And I wanted to ask you about the relationship that you have with directors. So are there lots of directors that you're kind of having to nurture and say, this is what you need to go and get because otherwise I'm not going to be able to cut it? And what types do you most like working with? Yes, I have been very lucky because the directors who I've been working with, they have been very confident in their own opinion, but actually assured enough in their own opinion that they welcome my opinion or other people, you know, the, their cinematographer's opinion. So very collaborative. So I, I love working with people who want the best out of film. So for example, when I was doing The Missing, uh, Tom Shankland was my director and he had this wonderful idea that, I don't know if you've seen the film, but the child goes missing, it's um, Jimmy Nesbitt uh, and Francis O'Connor and they were incredible actors. But he had this idea that we could have a shot of say Francis O'Connor paralyzed in fear, just this static shot. And then she would come to life and she'd start to speak. So on the third day of the shooting, I was getting all the material of the scenes and also these sort of poetic moments that he was thinking about. And very quickly, I felt that they were um, slowing the film down. They were actually very self-conscious and they were making you as an audience step outside of the brief. And one of the great things as an editor is we are the first audience to the material. So Tom was great. I phoned Tom and I was saying to Tom, it just is a bit self-conscious. He was already beginning to suspect it was a bit self-conscious from the from the brushes. So I sent him the assembly. And then the thing that I could offer Tom, which was really exciting, was I found Frances O'Connor has the most beautiful profile. And in the grief, actually cutting to her profile or even cutting to the back of her head where we were denied her face or her tears when the child is gone, was actually so overwhelmingly viscerally powerful that you were in her shoes. Mm. And then on day four, uh, Tom dropped the concept of these poetic statuesque frontal shots. So that was very good because we saved a lot of time. And, and then he was really focusing on her profile and you know, the value of the back of the head. Who was to know that <laughs> there's any of there's the greatest story about um, Roman Polanski when he was doing Rosemary's Baby and he was trying to get the DOP to set up the shot of the neighbor on the telephone. And the, the DOP had set it up quite well. And then Roman Polanski came in and said, oh, totally wrong. And he moved the camera so that the door frame obscured the woman. And the cinematographer was sort of saying, this doesn't even make sense, but they turned over. And in the first test audience screening, everyone in the cinema apparently leaned to look around the corner to see the lady on the phone. <laughs> and I remember oh, hearing funny. that in film school. And then that's what I was saying to Tom for the missing. It actually made you, you wanted to see her grief by being denied her grief. You actually really felt it and you really wanted to see her. This is so interesting. I feel like I'm already learning, you know, what the actual way that you work is because as you say you're the first audience you're weaving together at the end of the day the visuals the sound the takes from the actors you know the silences all of those things so you've got this 
overall narrative arc as well as all these little cuts going on that's got to be quite a lot to juggle um, one of our patrons at Film Bath Dalma Schoonmaker she's also an editor says that she kind of likens editing to sculpture and I wonder you know if that's a little bit how you work I don't know if there are different drafts or if you kind of do one cut and then you kind of add and fine tune yeah do you know I do because I, I was trained on film actual film I'm that old unfortunately <laughs> but I when I approach even now that we're all non-linear, I watch everything and I take every bit that I like and I put it onto a sequence. And I call that sequence, for example, scene 26, Una selects. And then I'll do that for each scene that has been shot, then take a little break, you know, as you move on to the next scene to just get through all that material. And then before I begin to cut, I finish that process for all the scenes that were shot. And then I go back and I watch my whole selection. And I might have several moments you of the same line taken from different angles of, of camera. But very quickly, I, I discover that moment is the moment for that line. And I begin to build around it. So it's a little bit like osmosis. It goes into you and you know, you know what the subtext of the scene is, you know what the heart of the scene is, you know, the subjective point of view, if it, there has one, or if there isn't one, you try and find what should the audience feel. So I, I'm very in tune with sort of the psychology of the audience and how to pull it together, being mindful of the experience of them um, watching a film and being okay. brought on the ride. So, Una, we've been talking to students who want to work in film. We've been talking to kids at Screenology in Bristol and into film, and we've got questions from them for you. Um, so this question is from Vicky. How stressful is it being in front of a screen for so long every day? I mean, this is a generation that's also growing up in front of screens, right? So how, how stressful is it? you get used to it it's not it's not too stressful my sister is a special needs carer for adults with severe you know disability and when I see her job I just think the screens I can cope with because you know it's not that stressful you do deal with it you do need to take eye breaks I still don't wear glasses so I am beginning to think I have gone for eye tests and I'm on the cusp where I probably may need them in two years time or something but yeah, I, I think once she's working, you just get used to it. It's like um, it's like any job. It's okay. And, and also the other secret would be to move your screens. I always move them so they're staggered. They're not all at the same level. So they push them back and always try to use, if you have a plasma screen TV or if you even have your own monitor, try and look at something away. The other secret, by the way, is to do eye exercises, which I do do, where you get a biro look out the window and you literally pull focus because your eye is a muscle and you pull focus from the tip of the biro to the a leaf in the farthest tree and do that 10 times and it actually exercises your eye that's true i do do that that's brilliant i'm gonna definitely start doing that that's you can really actually feel you, you can pull focus <laughs> i definitely need to do that do you work in the dark do you like turn all the light like when you're you know at towards the end of you know, this film and it's all, you know, all the music and everything's coming together. Do you need to kind of close everything off? Or no, I, I, I don't. I love the window. I love, if I get a cushion room without a window, I die inside. I love fresh air. So I always have the windows open. My, my directors do complain. I, I am a cold creature. <laughs> I don't need the heat. <laughs> I think it's really important for people, by the way, to have light. I hate it when they give us cutting rooms without light. It's very bad for the soul. Yeah, I don't like them anyway. But I want to ask you more about um, being in the cutting room. So um, do you have different experiences with directors? Do you have some that sit next to you and are kind of on every edit and some which leave you for a week and then come back in and watch and give you feedback? Tell us about that. Yeah, I do. Um, 
it, it does depend on the director. Interestingly, a lot of the women directors I work with, they love being in the cushion room and they stay in the cushion room and they really enjoy the process of storytelling in the cushion room. And a lot of the male directors I work with, they're the opposite. They, they enjoy the cushion room, but they come and they go. Really? Really, yeah, genuinely true. Why, why do you think that is? I think the two of the main uh, female directors I work with is obviously the brilliant Philippa Lothorpe and the brilliant Hattie MacDonald. And I think they just really love the cutting room. So even though they might be in the cutting room with me, they might be writing a script or developing something in the background. They're not necessarily sitting right beside me and going through every frame, but they just really love that process. And it gives them a chance to be in that atmosphere. And then some of the male directors I work with they might be developing other projects on the side, even though I think Hetty and Philippa would be as well, but they actually do it from the cutting room. And then they, they go off and they do other things and they come back with a fresh pair of eyes. Maybe it's a, a patience thing, you know, that they, they want to do other things, not just sit there while I'm laboriously pulling together a scene or finessing. But it's it's a fact. It's it's just something that is actually true. I have observed it. I, I have noticed it and I haven't asked any of them why, but I can see, for example, I've just been had the pleasure of working with Sir Kenneth Branagh and he's great because he just comes in, he watches, he gives great notes. Now he can hang out for a bit, but then he will leave me to it and come back the next day at a designated time. Um, whereas definitely Hetty and Philippa in particular, they really love you know, being toiling with me, which does mean, the other thing that I notice is that possibly by leaving, the male directors have, a bit of a distance to it so that they can look they look at it with less personal more objective and sort of see things and they might spot things before the executives whereas with uh, Hetty Philippa and myself we're just in there <laughs> we are living and breathing this thing so it's two different ways but it com- still comes with great results both ways come with great results so let me ask you another question from one of our students this question is from Mia it speaks a little bit to what you've been talking about just now. And Mia asks, how much control do you as the editor have over the narrative in the editing process? You mentioned, you know, being on set and just, you know, telling the director if scenes work. But what about the overall narrative? You know, do you do you have much say in that process? Yeah, you know, again, I do feel very lucky because I have managed to work with such lovely people. But even say, I've just done Death on the Nile, which should be in the cinemas, all things going well. It should have been in the cinemas last year. It should be in the cinemas next February. And say, that's Disney. And that's the biggest production I've done so far, $120 million, they're saying in um, the broadsheets uh, when they're describing it. So working with Disney, one would imagine that, like I was prepared for not having a voice as I would have when I'm working with Philippa, doing Three Girls, for example. But actually, I found and I say this to the students to give them heart, we're all human. So those Disney execs, they're also just human and they're so collaborative. And the fact that you're working together, I have found actually that I do have a voice. Now, sometimes when I'm working with Ken, we may differ and obviously he is the director. So I will have to listen very carefully to what they're wanting. I I can't enforce my own opinion. And very often, even if I think something I could try something out that Ken's wanting and to, you know, my joy and surprise, I'm thinking, oh, that actually really does work, actually. So I think you always have to listen. Never be too dogmatic. You always listen and be collaborative because people can come up with great ideas. And also people can come up with with concerns that you might think aren't concerns. But actually, when enough people tell you, you realize there is something there. Maybe the solution, you could come up with a different solution. I wonder about that, Una, if um, so... 
I'm always watching films and thinking, why didn't they just show this to one intersectional feminist? If they'd shown it to one feminist, then that woman would have said, or man, uh, actually, you've got a woman taking off her clothes for no reason in this shot. It doesn't progress the story. It doesn't, there's, there's nothing happening. Do you, have you ever had to fight any of those battles where you've had to say, look, really, you're going to get attacked for this. There's no reason for it. And actually, without maybe saying it, it's completely misogynist. Yeah, yeah. Let me have a little think. A lot of the films and TV shows that I've been attracted to, I have been attracted to them because they either might have a, a social or political or feminist touch that I'm really interested in. So I haven't really been attracted to if I read a script where there was unnecessary nudity, for example, I haven't been attracted to those things. Um, let me have a little think if there is But there's one. even, so my girls and I notice it. So I've got two yeah, teenage go. daughters. Yeah. We, every single shot, which is a kind of casual, almost an upskirt, it's not quite an upskirt. So it's kind of, you get away with it. You don't mm. quite notice it because it's so much a part of our film vocabulary. Mm -hmm. but we always clock it. You clock us, yeah. And we talk about it and we say, you know, who do you think chose that shot? Yeah. Why did they choose it? Would they have done that shot with a with a male bottom? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Shot? You know, well, you know those it, kinds of things. Those kind of things. Yeah, I, I think you're all right. I think I think instinctively though, when I am cutting, for example, now you should watch if you ever see me do anything that has a shot in, tell me. But I think instinctively, I, I probably wouldn't go for that shot when I'm cutting, when I'm assembling. And I, I would always be trying to find the humanity or the truthfulness of the scene and not get too sidetracked by, say, something that just seemed a bit gratuitous. So even, for example, when we were doing Three Girls, we were very mindful that nothing was gratuitous, that we really had to stick with the humanity of, of the people. Um, I am trying to think, though, because one of the things that I find as because I, I probably work with feminists, whether they're male or female. So I'm with like-minded individuals. <clears throat> but one thing I do feel very strongly about is we have to have greater representation of women behind the scenes in our job placements and on screen, better heroines, which is happening. But we also have to have better representation of people of color, black, Asian. That, that is a real bugbear with me that I just feel yeah. there's too many film shows and TV shows being commissioned who aren't doing that. And thank goodness now we do have I May Destroy You, we do have small acts. So there's been brilliant, brilliant shows coming out. But you, I'm so happy to see that because even with Three Girls, when Three Girls came out several times, I felt very mindful of saying for our British Pakistani actors, we have brilliant actors out there, but more scripts need to be written that show and celebrate the vast richness of our culture and communities in Great Britain and not just focusing on one area and that's the only limelight that they get. I just want to interrupt to say for anyone who hasn't watched Three Girls, which I, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It, it just tore my heart out of my chest. I mean, it was just so compelling. It's a mini series, three episodes, and it is based on the real life grooming uh, by, it happens to be, uh, Pakistani British men in Rochdale and surrounding areas of young white girls. And, and it was beautifully made. It, it used a lot of the real life characters and all of the transcripts from the trial, etc. So in case you haven't seen it, that's what Una's talking about, and it's well worth watching. And Anu, uh, if you don't mind me saying, because I told Holly this, um, but our British Pakistani actors who are brilliant, they were excellent in that film. And then for some of the men who were in the grooming circle, 
there was a difficulty to cast people because obviously who wants to take that role when there's so few roles been offered? Why would you want that role? And actually some of the social workers who work with the girls in Rochdale, they volunteered British Pakistani men who are social really? workers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Why? And I, because they wanted the film to be told. They wanted the story told. And because the real men as in uh, Nazir Afzal, the real the prosecutor, the, the prosecutor, the, the crown, crown prosecutor, prosecutor who brought the case to trial, who brought the case to trial, who was a Muslim man himself. Very important because they wanted to help tell the story because these girls had not been heard. They had not been believed. You know, they had been disparaged, I suppose, by police. And the social worker was wonderful that she just kept pursuing the case. And so therefore, it was really important that we made it. And I think big, I, I wish the BBC gave them a huge shout out because they were gracious and brave to do that, you know, particularly when they work with the community. And, and I do agree with you, Holly. I do think they should be showing the, these films to feminists, to communities, to diverse cultural communities, to make sure that we are reflecting our world and not just reflecting the world of a minority, a rich, privileged minority who isn't you know, indicative of the rest of us. So one of my campaigns, Una, is, is to, because I believe that all the images that we have in our mind, when you say the word surgeon or bus driver or nurse, those are all that you've probably pictured a white bloke, a bloke and a woman. And those images are created by the stories that we see on screen. And if we just changed who played those characters across the board so that you've got disabled people, you've got people of colour playing not drug dealers, but playing every strata in society, then immediately our perception would change and the perception of the people watching would change because that old adage of if you can see it, you can be it holds truth. <laughs> It does hold truth. And, you know, for Alien, I, I'm sure you both know this, but Alien was written for a man and then they cast Sigourney Weaver and the writer was going to, I believe, make some changes or someone had suggested. And I don't, can't remember whether it was the writer or director said, don't change a thing. And they didn't change a thing. So they didn't you know, change the dialogue now that it was Sigourney Weaver. They just kept it as it was. And that's why her character is brilliant and powerful. And, you know, the, one of the best women at that time for film as a brave woman, you know, beating the aliens. So somebody told me a brilliant story about, um, sorry, it was really quick, but they were a scriptwriter. They'd written a script. Um, and on the day, the uh, main actor turned up and he was a model. He'd been cast, it was for a short film, because he was beautiful and he couldn't act for Toffee. The, the lead, the love interest, who was a young woman, was a really experienced actress. And she said, just swap them around. Just swap the the lines swap the dialogue and everybody that watched the film said oh my god you're just so good at writing women <laughs> holly that's what they should Isn't all do that brilliant yeah that's what they, everyone never should thought do that. About that that's so interesting and you are right though they should do you know they should cast our these films with total you know inspiration of just the real people and as she said also disabled people like get everyone in yeah. because there's well, a sort of a blindness i mean what you guys are suggesting yeah. is kind of a blindness to gender a blindness yeah. to race so that you you just don't impose those preconceived yeah. ideas yeah. Um, una can i just bring you back to a couple sort of more craft 
the craft of editing because um, a lot of our questions from our students are about things like, you know, when does the sound editing come in? Do you get to choose the takes, you know, of the actors or do they get to say, no, this is my best side? And, you know, um, one of the films that you edited, um, Rosie, which is about an Irish, it's an Irish film about a mother with four kids and she is desperately looking for accommodation. They've been, um, they, they've lost the home that they were renting because it's being sold by the landlord. Absolutely stunning. And you know, the opening of that film is such a beautiful um, example of editing. So you've got sound of news items about a housing crisis. You've got the sound of the mum just making phone call after phone call after phone call to hotels asking for the availability for rooms. Whilst in the backseat of the car, three different children are bickering, squealing, you know, so you're weaving together the sound, the vision, the music, and there's this scene of real desperation. And I wonder, you know, is that something, you know, how, how does that come together? Is that a function of the editing? Is it a function of both directing and editing? Just talk us through that a bit. Well, I know it's amazing that you picked that sequence because, and I can tell you this because the director, Paddy Brannock, is really gracious. And he actually told this in some interview that he did here in Ireland. Um, the film actually started in the car with all hell breaking loose. She's trying to get a hotel room. The kids are screaming. And I was cutting the film. And that was, the film was a real passion project. We had a four week shoot, six week edit. And it was just shot with really, really long takes, very like 45 minute takes. So huge amount of footage. But what happened was while I was editing it, I couldn't settle. Every time the film just started, say from Element Pictures Presents and then this chaos of noise. And I was actually cycling into work. And while I was cycling in, I was actually thinking, what if we began to hear the voice under the condensation? And I, I went into work. The condensation Paddy, on the car windows and you see yes, a child kind of drawing. Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. So Pad, Paddy's vision was always, you see them through the window of the car at the beginning and at the end, but otherwise we're always in the car with them. So as I was cycling in, I was just sort of thinking to myself, if I did a sound bed and we heard bits of this, then the ear would be tuned to it. So by the time the film starts proper, we it doesn't matter what she's saying because we've sort of heard it already and we could just have the kids screaming. And then when I got in, I just tried it with them. Um, I, I took like later in the film, there was some uh, condensation on the window. So I zoomed in, froze frame, 30 second freeze frame, and I patched it together with titles and I showed it to Paddy as an idea and he loved it. And then he went out and he shot it with them drawing on the window and that's how we that's how we created that so that was definitely collaborative yeah. but I, I only share that with you because actually Paddy has been very gracious and he actually told that it was uh, it, it was that really, I came it, from yeah from, it, it's trying to actually what I find in editing is when you have a limitation or when you have something that isn't quite working it's a brilliant springboard for creative solutions and sometimes the creative solutions are more interesting than if they had worked it out themselves. And then that, that was one, the, the creative challenge I had was I couldn't settle into the film. And if I, as the editor, can't settle into the film, the audience would have had no hope. You would have switched it off, you know, if you were watching on telly, it would be just chaos. Whereas by, by weaving in those key words of social housing, she's on the credit card, social welfare credit card, she's looking for a hotel room, a family room. And you get that feeling of how many hotels she had to phone because it's a huge problem in both Great Britain and Ireland of homelessness. And, and because of the economy boom, the, the housing crisis, people who are in low wage jobs finding themselves homeless and trying to get their children to school. And they're being moved into hotel rooms that they can only access after 4 p.m. every day. And every day they must leave them. They, can't, they don't even get the room for the week. 
it's it's a huge problem. Yeah. So yeah. if anyone wants to watch Rosie, please do watch Rosie. And uh, I had no idea about the problem until Rosie. So I was, yeah, very grateful for the film. I love it when films show you a whole world you don't know about. Yeah, yeah. and, and you know, the ending was really good as well because, oh, I won't ruin the ending. For anyone else watching, <laughs> no, it is oh, no. <laughs> It's also just very familiar how you edit together the chaos of the children, the school run, the bags, the clothes, the lunches, and then you're having to leave the hotel room. So again, amazing editing. Without a brave and bold director and cinematographer, you know, the editor, we won't have those things to be like a magpie and find all those riches. And also with brilliant cast to stay in performance. I always say this, you can you can grab material before action and after cut, as long as your actor keeps the pose and doesn't break it. There are riches to be had finding there to get a stillness at times. Documentary directors who have done creative things with their storytelling are my inspiration. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you got into the field, because again, students really keen to understand where successful filmmakers come from, how they get in their foot in the door, how they progress. And what I do know about you is that you completed a, a degree in film and media studies in Dublin, and then you went on to study editing at the National Film and Television School. But I mean, did you have mentors? Did you have you know, a, a set path? No, you know what? My dad told the best bedtime stories. So my dad worked for Walt's Ice Cream, HB Ice Cream over here, but Walt's Ice Cream for Great Britain, purchase manager, my mom's a housewife. So no one's involved in film, but we, my family would have a very rich oral storytelling tradition from my grandparents as well. So if ever you come to Dublin and my parents are having a party, there's singing, there's storytelling, there's recitations all the time. And so growing up in that sort of milieu, I was always interested in, like my granny would sing those saddest stories after the ball was over about, you know, if you know that song after the ball was over, such a tragic song that as a child, you could just imagine this heartbreak in World War One. So I always was interested in filmmaking. And we used to go down on holiday to West Cork, which is down in the southwest of Ireland. And the cinema down there, because of rain in Ireland, my mom would have to bring us all to the cinema. And they always showed the film at the wrong aspect ratio. And there was always booms popping in. And I vividly remember saying to <laughs> wow. dad and mom, yeah, why, what are they? Because they weren't in Dublin. They were only in this cinema in Cork. <laughs> and my dad used to think that it was because they got the cheap films, but they didn't realize it was just the poor projectionists had never aligned. <laughs> Is, is it did make me aware of the fact that there were people behind the camera because you could see this boom every so often so when my brother went to college to study accountancy um, he came home and he was just saying Una Una there's a, a film course and I was 14 and so I did the film course and my parents were really great because I was in a very sort of academic school and at that time at the I, I left school in 91 yeah there was huge unemployment there was people were paying 70% taxes and my father you know he was just sort of saying to me but you won't get a pension I was just, <laughs> just like what type of job is this but they were so good because they actually could see that I really wanted to do it and my parents were great about saying well what what's important is you're going to spend so many hours doing the job you should do the job you love so my brother by the way who I always says inspired me he wanted to be a farmer and we're from Dublin but we used to holiday in West Cork. So he's the only guy I know from Dublin who studied to be a farmer. And then when he graduated, of course, he had no farm because we had no farm. So he had to go into frozen foods. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but it's good though because he, he paved the way for me that we, my parents were just brilliant about supporting us, whatever we wanted to do. And then I went to the National Film Television School 
And every so often my mom says, because I, I ended up doing seven years training, she, she always, her joke is I could have been a doctor. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I will tell her this brain surgeon thing. But that's how I did it. I, I actually did it just for the love of it. And of course, when I went to the National Film and Television School, because it was such a financial, um, I was very lucky, by the way, it was free. Wow. At wow. that time, because we were all members of the EU. If you were not a, an EU member, it was 11,000 per annum. So if I had to pay for that, there's no way I could have done it because my parents were already supporting me to try and just you know, get my flight over and my rent over here. And um, I threw myself into it. So in the three years that I was at the National, I actually ended up doing 16 films, 15 shorts and one feature. I just, if my parents were helping me like that, I just wanted to make sure that I, I put everything into it. And I, I did, I worked really, really hard. And then I had um, one of my graduation films won the best short film in Cannes in 1999. So that was good. That was sort of a nice thing for my mom and good. dad to see. Yeah. <laughs> Good. That's more than good, Una. <laughs> better than being a doctor. <laughs> yeah, much better than being a doctor. But it did mean that I did. I did put work in. You do have to put your your work in because you know what? It is a commitment to your craft because you can only get better with practice, no matter what you do. And and what I would love, Holly, if I had a magic wand, I think I would love to create more bursaries for children who do come from backgrounds where you cannot afford to pay for those fees and to give access to everybody, regardless of their economic station, so that they can have access. Because I think filmmaking, to give a voice to people, is one of the most precious gifts that we can give to reflect our own community. Well, and it's not just filmmaking. It's the whole, you know, we wouldn't have had the Beatles if we hadn't had the doll. We wouldn't have had all those amazing working class actors if they hadn't also been able to sign on. And now it's all becoming Etonians. You know, I mean, the the niche that it's becoming is is getting smaller and smaller. And, and, you know, I would hope that we can actually do something about that, because even they themselves, the good ones, they have to know that it's wrong. That's yeah. you know, so much of our society is coming from a handful of schools that that's just not right. Something's fundamentally yeah. wrong there. So, Una, I wanted to ask you about viewings with executives specifically. So one of my editors and I, he always used to put deliberate, obvious mistakes in the rough cuts that we were showing execs to give them something that they could feed back and then we could change so we could still keep the film that we wanted without them broggling around. What? Tell me about your experience with execs. I, I I don't put in any sort of clangers. Hopefully. What what if they like the clanger? <laughs> I have I have done things where I have say cut some ideas. Say with the director, we we have something up our sleeve. But maybe for the first viewing, it's more prudent to show the execs the script version, so that they can also see why it feels too long, perhaps in an area. And then very rapidly, you can say to them, as they give you the notes, you can say, don't worry, we're on it. And you actually have a few things up your sleeve. I, I have done that before where, and actually it's quite reassuring whenever you've sort of anticipated something and then the exec gives the note and you're thinking, great, don't go too fast, too, too far. Because then, Interesting. then you end yeah. up having to go back and you have to show them why you did what you did. And actually it's too many steps backwards. Mm. It's human psychology. Um, I've got one last question for you, Una, from one of our students. Uh, this question is from Maisie. Is there a film you'd like to recut? Oh, yes, there is. Do you want to tell us which one? <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> I will. Is this going live around the whole world? No, it's not live. But, but <laughs> the idea is that people hear it. <laughs> we all learn, don't we? I don't mind saying it. 
Veronica Decides to Die. So that was one of my first films back in 2008, starring Sarah Michelle Geller, the director Emily Young and myself. My first feature was, I had done feature documentaries, but it was my first feature film. And it was Emily's uh, second feature film with a little bit of um, more experience. We probably could have put the brakes on because when people were suggesting changes, we were doing the changes and we were doing it too rapidly. And we were also on Avid, whereas we had lost the rewind time of film. Whenever you had to recut a film, you really had to think about it because if you were going to unpick this film, it was going to cost you because if you wanted to put it back together again, there'd be all these unintentional splices. Whereas on Avid, you could just do it. And I think that's what, what I would say out of respect for the director, I'm sure she would say the same thing. I'd love to go back in on that and just calm down and not try and deliver all the notes that everyone was giving us because if you try and deliver all the notes from all the different parties mm-hmm. it will not work now the film was successful in korea and poland and south america but it was never really released in ireland or england <laughs> in second languages <laughs> i'm sure Maisie's gonna look up that film now una we're all gonna have to rewatch it um but thank you so much for giving us your time and for talking to us so candidly about your career and all of the stuff that goes into film editing it's really been for me really fascinating I mean I can edit on iMovie it's not nothing a patch on what you're doing but it's been really fascinating to hear about your journey yeah thank you so much Una and thank you Holly thank you so much for inviting me because every time you said successful I think I have more to do (laughs) I'm still growing I'm really (laughs) looking forward to everything you do Una thank you so much thank you so much thank you both very much Una is such a joy, isn't she? Yeah, she really is. I love her enthusiasm, her energy. I love the eye exercises. I love (laughs) the way she edits everything. I mean, top to bottom. She must be an absolutely fantastic mentor. Yeah, she must be. I can only imagine Mm. how, how much her mentees must adore her. Yeah. Now, next week's episode I recorded without you, Anu, which was which was weird. I had to do all of my homework properly. I couldn't fall back on you. And uh, yeah, obviously, I missed your journalism and professionalism. Um, I think that was a perimenopause black hole month or something. <laughs> but anyway, the interview is super interesting. It's a job that I never would have thought existed. So yeah, really interesting to hear about it. Yeah, Bryony Hansen, who we're reviewing on the next programme, is uh, for us, for those of us that work in film exhibition, she's an absolute hero. She's the British Council's Director of Film and she's responsible for promoting UK film internationally. And yeah, in the episode, we talked about so many different things from decolonising the British Council to the power of Bond. It's a really great episode. Yeah, really interesting. So please do make sure that you tune in. Please make sure that you're subscribed to the series so that you get a notification that the new episode is live. And please, please take a minute. I know we say this every time. Just give us a like, give us a share, a follow. You can share it with your friends on WhatsApp. You can send the link around. Everything you do really makes a big difference to us. So please do that. And thanks for listening.